Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Hey, Peter. Greetings. Well, after months of breathless anticipation, the New Hampshire primary is now behind us, along with the totally dysfunctional Iowa caucuses. Now the Democrats are on to South Carolina, Nevada, and Super Tuesday, including the primary right here in Massachusetts. Bernie Sanders looks to be in pretty good shape right now after winning New Hampshire. Ditto Pete Buttigieg. And of course, Amy Klobuchar is now in the mix after being an afterthought, for most of us anyway, for months. Peter, you've had a couple of days to decompress from New Hampshire and synthesize your thoughts about the state of the Democratic race. How do you see things right now? Well, on the surface, they're pretty confusing. I mean, I I don't think we'll have a clear idea about, you know, what the heck's going on with the Democrats until March 4th, the day after Super Tuesday. But I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think it's helpful for all of us to keep in mind the big picture. You know, you've got Donald Trump, who has rock-solid support. Um, very unusual for a politician. He has never tried to increase his base, but I'm not sure anyone's ever had a base like his, which is, you know, rock solid. Um, the Democrats the, the Democrats have more voters. The Republicans have a geographic uh, advantage. So this is all going to come down after the conventions and stuff about you know, getting enough anti-Trump voters out in a handful of states, um, and and that's going to be the ball game. Now that sounds deceptively simple, be, but um, the real ghost hovering above the Democratic Party right now um, is Mike Bloomberg. Um, if Bloomberg does well on Super Tuesday, what will the Bernie Sanders camp do? I mean, they're very loyal to their guy. Bloomberg uh, is would, under normal circumstances, be considered the enemy. I mean, I think it's worth making a little detour here in my uh, my little monologue. You are our guide, so <laughs> go where you need to go. Bloomberg is essentially a Republican. Um, By the way, not a bad Republican, but he's about as moderate a Republican as you can get. I think it's telling. There's no place for moderates in the Republican Party. There hasn't been for a long time. Um, So you have this very strange situation. Here's the strange situation. You know, the, the leader of the pack is Bernie Sanders, um, who is not a Democrat. He's a Democratic Socialist, you know, unlike Chris Matthews. Uh, uh, and um, Yeah, Matthews called him a communist. A communist right? and uh, a lot of the other baby boomers, people my age, are all of a sudden saying, what the heck is going on with Bernie Sanders? Well, what's going on with Bernie Sanders is the same thing that's always been going on. He He's... You know, he's he, he's a real, true lefty. He's not a Democrat. You know, he's sort of renting the Democratic Party. Um, but then you have his great threat or perceived threat, because I'm not sure how Bloomberg's going to do. But the perceived threat is a guy who is 
a Democrat also in name only. Well, He's a one, Republican. I take your point. That's one perceived threat. The other perceived threat, of course, well, I guess there's maybe a few. The other guy who's a perceived threat is Pete Buttigieg, who I think the Bernie faithful view as almost a Bloombergian figure, sort of a, a moderate to conservative Democrat in sheep's clothing, hiding behind his fresh face and the fact that he'd be the first, uh, the first gay president if elected. So there's there's a couple a couple people for the Bernie faithful to distrust, right? There are, but um, I wonder how moderate Pete Buttigieg is. Here's an example: Would he favor eliminating the tax exemption for religious organizations that don't recognize same-sex marriage? Now, nationally, that's a real issue. It's a hot button. You know, I think a moderate would be opposed to that. Um, I'm just throwing a question out there saying there's a lot we don't know about a lot, especially about Pete Buttigieg, who is new to the national scene, unlike Bernie Sanders, who we know an awful lot about. And that's, I think, one of the things that when we were up in New Hampshire, you hear again and again from his supporters, the people who like him most, they say he's been the same guy for 40 years. Uh, You know, you, you know what? He believes on a whole uh, on a number of crucial issues. He doesn't change. And they see Elizabeth Warren as someone who's kind of come around to Bernie-esque positions in some areas, but him as the guy who's led and she as someone who's followed. Well, this actually offers me a great opportunity. In, in our last installment, uh, I was way too flip about Bernie Sanders. Um, now, part of that is Bernie sometimes is a caricature of himself. But I have to say, I was my tone was way too dismissive, and especially seeing him in action in New Hampshire, and especially seeing the other and commitment of his his camp, his followers, his supporters. Um, Bernie's a serious man. Um, it in when you compare and contrast. Elizabeth Warren with him, there's a quite understandable difference. You know, 20 years ago, Elizabeth Warren was a Republican. Now, I'm not bringing this up in the spirit in which I talked about Bloomberg being a Republican. She was honestly a moderate Republican back when those people existed. And she changed from a Republican to a liberal to a crusading consumer advocate, you know, now to a full full-fledged progressive. I don't doubt the sincerity of her evolution, but she has evolved over 20 years, while Bernie Sanders has been largely the same. Let's talk a bit more about Warren and her attempt, as I see it, to rebrand herself coming off disappointing finishes in Iowa and New Hampshire. She gave that speech on primary night saying that she is the Democrat best suited to unite the broadest coalition of Democrats, thereby giving the party a chance to beat Donald Trump in 2020. Do you think that her pitch that she could be the Democrats' big unifier passes the smell test? Well, I think it passes the smell test. And and by smell test, I mean, does she really believe it? And I do think she really believes it. it's not that Elizabeth Warren can't be cynical like any other politician, but and I think she really believes that. That doesn't mean it's true. Um, 
a problem Elizabeth Warren's campaign has had strategically, I think, is that it's assembled its coalition in part by, you know, uniting many sort of micro constituencies. Again, this is something I've said in the past, but it's like one of the walls of her support is made up of many, many Legos, you know, as, as opposed to Bernie Sanders, which is a slab of concrete. I remember you using that, uh, that metaphor, and it actually reminds me, just in passing, Paul McMorrow, who used to write for Commonwealth, the weekly oh, yes. before that, and is now in state government. He wrote this great piece after Marty Walsh, maybe it was when Marty Walsh was running for mayor, saying that Walsh had assembled a coalition of people who had in common the fact that they were for Marty Walsh, and that was it. He put it more elegantly than yeah. me, but the same idea. So if Warren genuinely believes that, and if it might be a tough thing to actually make reality, if it's more aspirational than anything else, what do you think her chances are in Massachusetts? We are you know, not the only state with a primary on Super Tuesday because it's Super Tuesday, but it would look kind of rough for her if she couldn't even win her home state. How vulnerable do you think she is here? I don't know if she's vulnerable, um, which would suggest she's behind, but she's got a heck of a fight here. This was a state that was huge for Bernie. I think um, he just lost to Clinton last time. It was like, you know, 51 to 49 or yeah, something like that. It, it was a, a, a real squeaker. Now, of course, this brings us back to Bernie again. Um, people, I don't think people realize that much of Bernie's potency the last time around was Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton weaponized Bernie Sanders. And without Clinton in the race now, I think Bernie's fallen back to a level that, you know, reflects what his true support might be. I want to make sure I understand what you're saying here. When you say she weaponized him, I think what you're saying is by running against Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders gained a strength uh, and a breadth of support that he might not have had otherwise. Am I getting that right? Yes. I mean, there are a lot of people who didn't like Hillary Clinton, including people on the left. And they said, hey, um, you know, this is Richard Nixon's great adage. You know, people don't vote for things. They vote against. And that was their entree into becoming Sanders loyalists. Yeah. Got it. Uh, Let's shift gears a little bit. Maybe this is just because as we record, I'm getting ready for Beat the Press tonight. And the package that I have to write involves the media's treatment of different candidates. But as you know, there have been a few candidates who have uh, either raised questions about the way they've been covered or had supporters raise questions about the way they were covered. Deval Patrick put out that statement after he dropped out of the race, basically saying that by telling everyone he was getting in the race late, the media made it impossible for him to win. Uh, we didn't let voters make the choice that they might have made otherwise. Uh, Before you go yeah, on, sure. let, let me stop you right there. At the risk of sounding like Donald Trump, Deval Patrick's a baby. Ouch. You know, um, he never liked the press, which is fine. If I were in public life, I don't think I'd like us either. But th- that is um, a real whining thing to say. Um, I had I had a hard time. I got to say, I tweeted a little bit about this. I had a hard time with his statement because, to my mind, those of us who covered him, and I, I was there covering him, asking, I, I'm pretty sure, about the timing of his entry into the race, we weren't judging him as a bad person because he got in the race late, which is something his statement almost seemed to suggest. 
what we were asking, I think very reasonably, is all these other people have spent a year or more building up their presidential campaign operations. Of course, it is not just Patrick suggesting that the media is imposing meta-narratives on the race, or maybe just narratives on the race, in a way that distorts people's ability to understand what's actually happening. Uh, Elizabeth Warren sent out a statement right before you and I sat down to chat saying that the media has not been giving her the same amount of coverage as they have to candidates who've done more poorly than her uh, in Iowa, in New Hampshire. I was struck by the Herald cover yesterday. And yeah, the Herald's the Herald, but it's worth noting what they do on occasion because it can be instructive. It was a Herald cover that basically said, pay no attention to Bernie Sanders' win in New Hampshire. It doesn't really count. And you know, they had a picture of Bernie Sanders on a donkey and a no left turn logo, as the Herald is wont to do. So let me ask you just the, the broader question. Are we in the press a little too eager to tell people what things mean or to pick winners who didn't actually win but won the battle of expectations, that sort of thing, rather than just reporting the results and, and in a more dispassionate and measured way, the state of the race? Look, you know why I usually love to beat up on the press. Um, having just come back from having spent, as you did, several days in New Hampshire, it's tricky to talk about the press as a monolithic um, entity. Um, You're right. We were all scratching our heads trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, were we, as the press always write? No, we weren't. But we weren't wrong like the Herald. What that Herald front page is, is that's a bit of Trumpian propaganda trying to boost Buttigieg so they, so, and it plays into the big anti-gay attack that they're getting ready to mount on him. So that's just, you know, that, that's just preparation for a hate campaign. Back to Elizabeth Warren. Um, I think Warren has a point. Um, I, I think, for example, in New Hampshire, I saw a, a, a number of pieces and headlines and broadcasts, reports that focused on, you know, narrow number one and number two, Sanders and Buttigieg, Biden number five, and then no mention of Warren number four or uh, Klobuchar number three. This is a tricky business. Um, primaries you have to almost look at them like you look at the stock market. What happens, people who play the stock market are always looking forward. They're anticipating what's happening. Klobuchar coming in three was setting her up to be a much bigger player than she had been. You know, is it um, annoying that night to see the other papers lead with Klobuchar? Sure, it's annoying, but come on, you big boys and girls. This is, you know, Winston Churchill, I think, once talked about, talk, spoke of the fog of war. Talking about a political, these presidential primaries are a form of semi civilized warfare. Um, and I have to say that I thought the tone of Warren's. Um, complaint was really pretty good. I, I think she does have a point. You and I a couple of times up there were asking each other, Jesus, is it our imagination or is everyone ignoring Elizabeth Warren? 
there's a reason, th there's truth to that, but there's a reason for it because primaries tend to be driven by two factors, momentum and demographics. In New Hampshire, we had something of a momentum primary with Buttigieg doing better than expected but still not beating Bernie Sanders. Why? Because of momentum. And we had Klobuchar doing better than initially expected. Why? Because of momentum. So, you know, we're all hardwired. We, we go back to the, the sort of things we learned as kid reporters. Um, I got to say, <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't say the press has done a great job with all the presidential coverage, but the stuff coming out of New Hampshire was really pretty good. And watching how hard people were working and how open they were to new ideas, um, I don't know, I'm not often proud to be a journalist, but I sort of left there, you know, saying, well, we're doing the best we can. My last question for you. You talked earlier about the unprecedented hold that the president seems to have on his base. Yes. That sounds to me like, among other things, maybe not an indictment of former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, but a acknowledgement that his attempt to reawaken a slumbering Republican conscience, as he sees it, isn't making much headway. Well, it's not, but I really don't blame Bill Weld. Um, I, I, in a way, I wish I could. It would be nice and neat. This is all Trump's doing. I, I mean, um, I interviewed about 20 Trump supporters, and I began very softly, like asking them who I thought would, they thought would win the Democratic primary. And when they didn't have strong opinions, asked if they liked Trump, and they said yes, and I sort of snuck right in there. These are people, all blue-collar people, all working. When I mean working, I interviewed them while they were on their jobs. The first one I did was the woman who served me breakfast um, at, at the hotel. And this I was on that. a Sunday, if I this recall correctly. This was on a Sunday. And, and um, by the way, it was her. I didn't go up there intending to interview bunches of Trump Republicans. Um, my conversation with her said, wow, I wonder how many more people like this I can find. All five of my Uber drivers um, with Trump Republicans. What I'm saying is that Trump has cemented his support. Um, in Iowa, they had surrogates, you know, big name surrogates, the Trump kids, the White House counsel, the White House chief of staff at the Republican caucuses. I mean, they're, they're not getting much attention in the press because the Democrats are the big story. Yep. But the, the mega Trump rally in New Hampshire got a lot of coverage. You know, the, the front page of the New Hampshire Union Leader, which is an anti-Trump Republican newspaper, had his rally on the front page for the, 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 you know, for the primary. And, you know, I didn't talk to as many Trump Republicans as you did in New Hampshire, but I talked to some. And one thing that struck me about them is they have absolutely no doubt that he is going to crush whoever the Democrat is in November. Right. But to, to return to Bill Weld, um, look, on previous podcasts, you know, I've, I've observed that he's somewhat of a gamesman and is a little cool and isn't always engaged. That's all true. But I have to say, I admire him 
for putting himself out there. It, it, it's, you know, it's right out of Don Quixote. He's tilting at a windmill. But I think it's important that someone do that. And let's not forget that as um, uh, monolithic as Trump appears in New Hampshire, a state that he just narrowly lost to Hillary Clinton, you know, well, get close to 10% of the vote. Yeah. If that 10% swings to the Democrats, that could be vital. So, you, you know, uh, Weld will be a very interesting footnote in political history. All right, that is going to do it for another episode of The Scrum. But before you go, grab your calendars and a pen. WGBH News is hosting the first U.S. Senate debate between Ed Markey and Joe Kennedy on Tuesday, February 18th. The debate runs from 7 to 8 p.m. with Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan moderating. Peter Kadzis and I will be hosting a debate watch party at the Boston Public Library. So join us if you have a chance. Drop by a bit before 7, take in the proceedings, and then talk with us about what went down for a few minutes afterward. Or you can watch the convo on Facebook. I will be tweeting out a link on Tuesday. Peter, I assume that, like me, you'll be spending your weekend planning feverishly for this, uh, this um, event? I actually will, <laughs> yes. As will I. I'm going to be wedded to the television, watching cable news and reading the papers from around the country. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that you and I have uh, hosted a watch party together before, have we? Yeah, we haven't. Do we wear fancy dress? I have or? no idea. We have some research to do yeah. before the dance. So, yeah, absolutely no clue. A bow tie. On that note, Thank you for listening to The Scrum, and do subscribe if you haven't already. Also, let us know what we're getting right and wrong. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is Zoe S. Matthews, S as in strategic, Matthews with one T. And for the record, we get crucial production help from a bunch of other colleagues with Gary Mott topping the list. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.